Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. And today, we will be taking a sneak peek into our upcoming News Arrive Digital Journalism Conference. We are really excited about our lineup this year. The event is just over a month away, so put it in your diary. It's on the 27th of November at Reuters in London. And we have some great panels and workshops poised on some of the biggest topics facing and shaping the journalism industry today, led by some great names. On the podcast today, we are joined by four of our panellists ahead of time to talk about what they will bring to the event, and more to the point what you will learn from panels on diversity in the newsroom, using AI to cover breaking news, fighting mis- and disinformation, and what skills journalists will need in 2020. Don't go anywhere. Our first guest is Marvereen Cole, journalist, broadcaster and academic at Birmingham City University. She features on a panel on how to build a diverse and sustainable newsroom to regain an audience's trust. Now, we have reported a lot around diversity, the ways organisations are driving it, and the continual need to do so. This panel looks to go one step further and discuss how diversity is, yes, a moral imperative, but also a legitimate business strategy. To explain more is Marvereen. Thanks very much for joining us and very much looking forward to hearing you speak. How are you, Marvereen? Oh, thank you, Jacob. I'm good. And um, I'm really honoured to be um, asked to join the panel. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. Let's start with a quick look at you and your work. In this ongoing conversation and discussion around driving diversity, tell us about what you're involved with, Marvreen, where you are in Birmingham and also elsewhere in the industry. Right. Well, yeah. So I wear two hats. I'm a freelance journalist and broadcaster, have been for 16 years, um, working for the likes of BBC, Sky, ITV, um, as a reporter, producer and presenter, and also making documentaries as a freelance broadcaster for the BBC. And then my other hat is as um, the director of journalism courses, undergraduate journalism courses at Birmingham City University. We have a a strong proportion of uh, students who are from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. Can't quite uh, put my hands on the figures right now, but it's something like 30 to 40 percent of our students. We have a high proportion of what we call commuter students. So students who come in to university from in and around the West Midlands conurbation. Um, So we've got, you know, a a range of students from kind of different backgrounds, sometimes challenging, um, sometimes, um, you know, not not having, you know, a great level of wealth in their family, maybe first generation going to university. And that's reflected on my courses, a diverse student population of black minority ethnic um, students of, you know, who have issues around um, their sexuality, their identity, um, and we do everything we can to support them. In terms of what I'm doing around the, the work at the university, we have just launched an unusual and kind of groundbreaking partnership in journalism education, working with HuffPost UK, because HuffPost are very interested in working with diverse students and understanding the minds of younger audiences. And that's what we do. That's what myself and my team do. We teach those very students. In line with my work, I um, am very closely connected with a lot of um, black journalists and broadcasters in the UK. We talk about the, the stories that matter to us and those that we then know matter to an audience that we try and deliver to the audience and you know the, the, the news organisations that we work for. And I myself am, you know, very much a champion and look for stories are from diverse communities. One of my latest documentaries was about black women's experiences of mental illness that broadcast on Radio 4. 
So, you know, my, in my journalism work and my journalism education work, I'm looking to find stories uh, that are wider narratives from, you know, often overlooked communities, but also teach my students that that's an important part of journalism and that their own stories are, are valuable as well. Wow, many hats and lots of experience there to share. At News Rewired, we're really aiming to make this a practical experience. What do you think the wider industry can learn from your background and what message do you hope to impart onto our delegates? You know, when I think about diversity, it is wider than black and minority ethnic. Um, it's about class. It's about um, faith. It's about sexuality. It is about um, disability, you know, um, in all its forms. Um, and I kind of, you know, believe that and um follow that in terms of the same way that the nctj see it their diversity bursary is about diversity in its widest sense uh, i often shortlist applications for bursaries and we look for people who who feel that whatever their background in that sense of diversity can contribute to a newsroom and that's the real important thing um to take away those working in news organizations who are hiring and firing um, journalists should be looking for people who have wider perspectives because you know your background and experience is valuable and you can bring new perspectives to newsrooms that might not necessarily have been um, explored before you might even have or those journalists might even have contacts connections with their communities again which might have been overlooked in the past in news stories and narratives they can bring those to the newsrooms um, and they can inform and widen and strengthen and deepen the journalism that is produced. Um, and who doesn't want that at a time when news organisations are, you know, trying to make sure that they are reaching out to younger audiences, um, to those audiences of the future who don't consume traditional um, media uh, anymore, or they're, they're, they're shying away from traditional media it's reaching those audiences to talk about issues that matter to them and that is so important and that also is, is linked to the future sustainability and profitability of news organizations is that the main argument for you then striving towards equal representation is of course more than an adequate reason but what besides that moral imperative are the other reasons to care about diversity and frankly do they matter yeah it's about um capturing um audiences we know um you know the Reuters Institute of Journalism figures around news avoiders um you know the Ofcom data is there around younger audiences not watching or watching less and less traditional radio and television news um they're going to other sources of news and entertainment for that matter that actually reflect diversity um and in some respects, I think some organisations are have only just woken up to it and are now kind of desperately going, oh, what are we going to do? OK, we need to broaden our remit um, and we do need to um, include narratives from other communities around the country and other diverse communities to make sure that we are reaching those younger audiences and those wider audiences. You know, it's if you don't reach your audiences and you're not broadcasting anybody who's listening, watching or reading, you are not going to survive. I think it's going to be a learning curve for all of us and I can't wait to hear more about your work. But until then and until November, thanks very much for speaking to me and yeah, very much looking forward to it. 
Absolute pleasure, Jacob. Thanks so much. See you soon. Lots more to come on that debate as we are joined by speakers from the Associated Press about how this subject is being approached in the US and other organisations here in the UK which have taken a different approach to hiring strategies. But on to the next topic of debate, I'm joined by Karen Fleeting, Head of Audience Acquisition and Engagement of Reach PLC. Karen is appearing on our panel, which dives into how newsrooms can use AI to their advantage during breaking news reporting. Karen, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role within Reach PLC. I'm Karen Fleeting. I'm the Head of Audience Acquisition and Engagement at Reach PLC. I work across Reach PLC's regional publications. Uh, They stretch from, goodness me, from Truro and Cornwall, um, all the way up into Scotland, from Tunbridge Wells in Kent over to uh, Cork and Dublin in Ireland. So it's, uh, we have a big footprint. Yeah, I imagine a huge, huge footprint there. A fascinating discussion ahead of us at News Rewired. Uh, to your mind, for context's sake, in local news, let's start by taking a look at the main challenges to covering breaking news or happening on, on newsrooms patches. What do, you, what do you think those main ones are, Karen? One common challenge is one of resource. And I've just spoken about the big footprint that Reach PLC has with our regional publications across the British Isles. But there are also logistical issues as well. So, for example, we have some of our newsrooms are in metropolitan centres, such as London, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Newcastle. But we also have other digital publications that cover large rural areas, for example, uh, Lincolnshire being the perfect one where Lincolnshire is is a large county, Uh, the roads infrastructure isn't as efficient, shall we say, as it could be, and it's possible that with a newsroom based in Lincolnshire and events taking place elsewhere in the county, it can take a long time to, to, to get to where the news is happening. And even if you have patch reporters, which we do, the time that elapses can still be significant. Um, so we have this issue of resource. And, of course, the other challenge that we face that's common to um, other newsrooms, be they local, regional, national, is is one of uh, simply one of human resource as well. We have journalists, we have editors who are supremely hardworking, uh, gloriously efficient, um, and still we're always looking for ways to uh, to ease their workload. That, that leads me perfectly into what was going to be my second question. How exactly are Reach responding to those challenges then with this use of AI? I think it's always interesting talking about AI because whenever you see AI covered in our industry news, there's always a a similar stock picture that accompanies it. It's usually a picture of a robot, or even more commonly, a picture of a robot or a computer. And it makes it sound like AI is still something rare and exotic and exceedingly futuristic, when actually, if you think about it, AI surrounds us every day not just not just in the newsroom but elsewhere as well every time you log into facebook and your news feed pops up on the screen things that you see in your news feed and and how they're determined how facebook determines what it thinks you want to see that algorithm that's that's ai uh, in in a newsroom on a day-to-day basis uh, we use um, sort of different tools in different ways i would say that ai features prominently within our tech stack. One of the products that we use is DataMiner. And DataMiner is our eyes and ears on the ground. 
and often helps us to identify news as it is breaking. So our journalists use data miner to, for example, they will set um, little geographical boundaries. And if they're uh, tweet, social media, anything happening um, within the catchment area that they've specified, um, data miner will alert them. Um, that's especially useful if, for example, you are a reporter in Lincolnshire and you can't be everywhere at once to be alerted uh, when something is happening. So da data miner is very valuable to us. So we, we're using tools to help us on two counts, I suppose. One is speed. Although we have, like I think every other newsroom around the country, we have our various dashboards set up, sort of Twitter lists, um, everything going on on TweetDeck. We use CrowdTangle intensively. Uh, it's It takes longer when you're searching and checking, uh, waiting for you know, it. It can take longer when you're doing it yourself. Whereas we can use AI to be alerted to breaking news as it is breaking, or in some cases, even before it's breaking. And in reality, in a day-to-day -day scenario, what difference does it make to journalists and editors having that asset in the newsroom? Hugely valuable. And we see this through how often, for example, our reporters are uh, logging into Data Miner. We can see the stories that come off the back of it that, that we wouldn't have had otherwise. And I, I would say the, the return on investment is, is excellent. And finally, what is the key message that you are hoping delegates are left with from your talk and the panel as a whole? I hope that everybody attending our panel at News Rewired is going to come away with um, useful news and information about AI and how newsrooms are using it and why we're finding it so valuable. But I also hope that it will break down some of the mystery about AI. As I said, it's, AI isn't something rare and exotic anymore. It's not some sci-fi vision. It's, it's all around us. And as journalists, we're using it every day. So there are preconceptions around it which could be broken down. I think so. I think so. Like I said, every time you log into Facebook or you, know, you come into contact with anything that's using an algorithm, you're likely coming into to contact with, um, with AI and with machine learning. Hugely interesting and can't wait to hear more at News Rewired. I'm sure there's lots more ground to cover, but uh, we'll save that until November. Uh, otherwise, Karen, thanks very much for your time and see you then. Thanks, Jacob. Joining Karen on the panel, we will be hearing from Twitter as well, and Dataminer will be chairing that discussion. So there's plenty of chances there to ask the tech companies themselves about this interesting space if you have any burning questions. It's a useful reminder as well that AI is essentially just another part of this expanding and diversifying skill set of journalists that we talk so much about. It moves us on nicely to panel three, where we pose precisely that question, what skills will journalists need in 2020? Here we find out where news organisations have narrowed their focus, where they see these key trends happening, and how they are trying to accommodate for that shift. Blanard Healy, Director EMEA of CNN Digital, joins us to tell us a bit more. Thanks for your time, Blanard. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners and tell us about what you do with CNN, please? My title is Director of EMEA for CNN Digital, and what that actually means uh, in reality is that um, I'm very fortunate enough to lead a team of uh, extremely talented journalists and editors that cover Europe, the Mideast and Africa for CNN's digital platforms. Uh, so that team is covering core breaking news. So, for example, um, stories today 
uh, like Brexit um, and Syria. Uh, and then they're working on deeper reported out stories. Um, so an example or a good example of this would be uh, the reporting that was published in June about the teenager in Saudi Arabia who was on death row. And then we work with um, designers and developers to produce uh, really immersive reporting that's really strong sort of visual storytelling. So an example recently of this would be something like the Guide to the Border uh, in Northern Ireland uh, that we produced. And we also then work across things like uh, digital um, series, so things like As Equals, uh, which is focused on gender um, inequality. So I'll put the panel question to you, Blanid. What skills will journalists need in 2020? What are the trends that CNN see happening? There are so many things that you could tell people they're going to need as core skills. Um, and, but I think that there's probably a lot of constants that just will never really go out of fashion. And I think they're things that people will probably always need as journalists working in this industry. Um, so being able to articulate the story you've reported is an absolutely key skill uh, and something that you continue to work on, whether you're new and sort of a, a cub reporter or you've been working, on, working as a journalist for quite some time. The other thing is thinking really creatively about storytelling um, and especially thinking about the digital formats that you can use, that you can create, that you can then use again over and over again. So, you know, strong visual storytelling skills and, and having that sort of um, leaning into uh, being quite creative about how you tell stories and how you package them for digital audiences um, is, is something that is sort of a skill to keep to keep uh, you know working on, um, I think understanding the audience that you work with, um, you know, understanding what the stories, what stories they're very passionate about, but also how you can kind of challenge that, and you know, and how you can get your audience to really engage with all sorts of stories. Um, and I think that that's a skill, you know, that you, you need to keep working on around how you package and tell the stories that are really important. Uh, being very curious about how people are consuming on their mobile phones. And I mean just consumption in general, not, not journalism and journalism, of course, but everything about how they're using their phones. You know, these are the devices where we reach our audience the most, uh, especially in countries in, in the region that, that, that the team that I work with covers. So, you know, places like Nigeria, where more than 80% of CNN's audience vis visits on its phone. Uh, so I think really obsessing about how people are consuming on their phones is something that's that you will need now, but you'll probably still need in five years' time. So think about mobile formats. Think about sort of the international audience and the international angle. Think creatively, but still articulate a story well. How have you embedded that then? And any changes you did make, what were the main reasons for that decision? We've done a few things. Um, I think really prioritising the importance of uh, mobile as the sort of platform for how we engage um, has been part of that. And and making sure that, you know, that people are aware, especially within, you know, within all sorts of parts of the teams, about that they're, they're aware of how our audience is coming to our platforms um, and, and really keeping that very present. So whenever, you know, especially if you're embarking on a very ambitious piece of reporting um, or, you know, that you're, you're storytelling in a, in a really ambitious way, um, that, that you're always asking that question, uh, you know, from the outset about how is this going to look and be experienced on mobile? And I think that that's, 
you know, you become a broken record on it, but you have to be because, you know, if the majority of your audience is, is consuming what you're creating on mobile, um, then you've got to be, you know, encouraging your teams to obsess about it. Um, one of the things that, you know, in the sort of bigger areas of, um, of sort of digital transformation that's been happening um, here at CNN is a really interesting program. And it gets to um, it gets to that point around that writing, good writing sort of never goes out of fashion. Um, and that CNN has been rolling out this program called Writing for Digital. Um, and that's, you know, for, for journalists who've been coming from all sorts of um, different backgrounds. Uh, and while writing has been something that everyone at CNN has done, you know, whether they've been writing for television, writing for shows, you know, or, or writing for um, maybe coming in from more of a print background, uh, you know, there's there's always work to be done um, around really crisp, excellent writing for digital platforms. And so how did journalists respond to the Writing for Digital program? What were the main learning curves and lessons that you got from that experience? I think one great example that I mentioned at the top briefly is as equals. Um, that's, that's a series uh, that, that's quite close to my heart. I edit it, but uh, Eliza McIntosh uh, produces it. Um, she's one of the producers here um, on the digital side in London, and it's published um, some really impactful journalism, um, but it's, it's engaging, it's really visual, it's mobile first. So it's really seizing on that mantle of let's, let's be ambitious in our in our mobile journalism, um, another example, um, you know, is something uh, that Lauren Morehouse, another one of our excellent producers um, here in London, created. It's a, a smart royal baby uh, name generator, and that was produced um, around the time when. Prince Harry and uh, Meghan had their son. And I think the thing about both of these projects is that they embrace that challenge of making exceptional visual journalism. And they also challenge the convention uh, that stories and sort of good um, stories must be, you know, 500 words plus a headline. Yeah, I can see how that's probably been quite a shift for you. And what would be the one thing uh, that you hope delegates really take away from your talk, if nothing else? that you walk away thinking okay change is something that's that's a that is a a background constant um in our industry um for so many reasons um and it can be uh, and, and at times has been scary but it's also extremely exciting and it gives us lots of new opportunities um and i think i'm hoping that you know that that will be that maybe that's a message that can be taken away from it and I think the other thing, just briefly, would be that we've got to be generous about what we've learned, right? If, if, you've, if, if you've learned something, I think pass that skill on. That's something that I really see deeply within, within the team here at CNN, um, you know, that, that when someone figures something out, that they're very good at then sharing, uh, sharing that learning. Um, and I think that just helps to raise everybody up. If you don't mind me saying, you seem optimistic about the future of the news industry. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I am. Um, you know, I think there's... Uh, it's nice. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that we've never been... In some ways, we've never been at a point in time when we've had such an immediate way to, to reach our audiences. And I think that, to me, the biggest revolution was the mobile phone. And I'm still excited about how it can, how it can help us to deliver really 
engaging and compelling journalism. It's really, really interesting. And I can't wait to dig even deeper um, at News for Wired in November. Uh, until then, thanks for your time, Blarnard, and we'll see you there. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jacob. Joining Blarnard is Matt Navarra, an authority on all things tech, social and digital, and he will share his expertise on the emerging online spaces that newsrooms and journalists should keep one eye on. With other voices from Forbes and the Financial Times, it's formed a really good mix. Last but not least, where would we be if we didn't discuss mis- and disinformation? It has to be up there as one of the biggest challenges facing journalism in the online space. But we are hoping to discuss this as how can quality journalism thrive in an era of mis- and disinformation? Our final guest is Jenny Sargent, Managing Director of First Draft. She's talking to us about the threat that is facing newsrooms today and what can be done based on learnings from its international collaborative fact-checking projects. Jenny, it's great to have you on the podcast. For the uninitiated, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Uh, so my name's Jenny Sargent. I'm the Managing Director of First Draft. Um, we established in 2015 as a global organisation tackling um, sort of instances of misinformation and ways that those on the front line of reporting can benefit from some of the skills and techniques that help you verify and understand how to sort of discover and investigate stories online. Um, we have grown in an extraordinary rate for the last uh, year in particular. Uh, we now have a team of 25 here in London and we also have offices in New York and Sydney and we're expanding uh, to bureaus in other countries as well. It's become the most important topic and um, we're very proud of the work that we do to help journalists who are tackling these challenges. And of course, First Draft does a lot of fact-checking projects all around the world. Um, how does it typically work? Yeah, so um, First Draft sort of pioneered the idea of cross-check for the French election in 2017 um, and the kind of quite unique methodology at the time was an idea that newsrooms would work together and share evidence, verification steps, investigation skills, um, and crucially credit each other for the work and collectively report the um, instances that they were seeing and helping the, the public to understand why something may or may not be reliable or trustworthy. Since then, we have done a similar project in Brazil called Comprova, which was a huge success. And we've also inspired other projects. So Verificado in Uruguay is taking place now. Um, and there's also uh, Reverso in Argentina. I, I need to rem remind myself of the different names. Um, and so the, the, these projects are supported by First Draft, but actually they're kind of evolving to, to be managed by the coalitions themselves, which is a crucial part of the work that we do. Very much we want to share what we've learned from doing these collaborative projects, but ultimately each country is different, each context is different, and the relationships between newsrooms is different. So we work to assist people in, in how they can better collaborate. And they don't mind working together? Competition doesn't get in the way at all? Well, we're always really heartened that the journalists themselves are very open to working together. It works very much like Twitter in that regard. When there is a breaking story in particular, I think journalists by nature are very open to the idea of, you know, who knows what and when and how can we kind of collectively ensure that we're all reporting the same information. Um, I think where there is inevitable competition is as you go higher up in an organisation. Um, and really... It's a complex thing to say, actually, all of these newsrooms have worked side by side and all collectively agree a conclusion. And we can only ever really say that about verifiable 
facts. We, we're, we're not going to ask everyone to write the same story, but the evidence that underpins that story can be agreed and can be shared. So in principle, I mean, it always helps to have the journalists meet each other to share some of the challenges. A lot of the time we talk about building a super newsroom that has all of the different skills that no one newsroom could possibly expect to employ. Not everyone is going to employ a language specialist. Um, not everyone's going to employ an audio forensic specialist. Not everyone is going to employ, and many people no longer employ, kind of dedicated fact checkers. So this is a way of saying, actually, how can we pool our resources, either local information or specialisms, to ensure that the public are receiving the right information? So during those political events, or indeed at any other time, what do you think is the typical level of complexity that mis- and disinformation has now reached? How is it manifesting itself, and what do you think the public really need to be aware of now? At the moment, we're, we're trying to explain that there are times of heightened uncertainty, and during those times of heightened uncertainty, that's usually an election, but obviously any kind of breaking news event, or it could be an extreme weather event, for example, or it could be around a particular topic of concern, like vaccinations. But during those times, when there's potential to cause real harm, that's when information is very often presented out of context. And the most important thing we feel that, that these collaborations can do is help, to help the audience to understand the bigger picture surrounding these claims um, that are circulating. So it's not always as straightforward as somebody creating something that's you know, 100% fake. I wish it was. That's actually quite <laughs> straightforward to say whether something is true or false. Very often what we're seeing is um, information that is framed in a way that can, it's deliberately misleading, it's deliberately divisive, um, and how and where should people turn to to help them find the information they're seeking at a time when it matters the most, and what indicators can we provide uh, beyond just a kind of kite mark of credibility, which is, I know, what some of the industry is, is kind of flagging as a solution. Any of those steps can help, but ultimately it comes down to the quality of reporting and the transparency of the method behind that reporting that will really help the audience understand and believe what they're reading so the one message that needs to be heard today jenny is what what is the key message that you hope gets put across on that panel i think it's an opportunity for us to really um, hammer home the idea that collaboration around topics such as this can only benefit an organization there is a really solid business case for collaboration it's not just a worthy idea you will find more stories if you share your work you will pro protect yourself and your newsroom from being hoaxed um, you will be able to you know increase sort of trust and credibility amongst your audiences by demonstrating the steps that you took to reach a conclusion um, and you know ultimately endorsing each other's work and promoting and crediting each other's work isn't a bad thing at this time for media where you know it feels a little bit that it's becoming us and them and the media is, is kind of coming under significant criticism, this is an opportunity to say, actually, my colleagues over at this particular paper or this particular news channel are doing good work. We recognise that work we, and we have added to that work um, in our own reporting. So it's, it is a shift, but I don't think it's, it's a ridiculous one. So a rallying call for collaboration there, but of course the discussion has only just begun. Jenny, thanks so much for your time and we'll see you in November. Thank you very much. 
So there you have it, four fascinating topics to get you fired up for News Rewired, but there is even more to look forward to. We have workshops on building and engaging with your audience, plus mobile journalism legend Yusuf Omar delivers a talk on the future of technology, media and people. You don't want to miss out. Head over to newsrewired.com for the full agenda and tickets. That date again is the 27th of November at Reuters in London. But let me say a huge thanks to all of our guests today, Marvarine, Karen, Blarned and Jenny. But thanks, of course, to you at home or on the commute for tuning in. I do hope you took something away from today's discussion, but are also keen to come along and find out more. If you like what you heard, tune in next week as we explore a survival guide to investigative journalism. And if you fancy being on the podcast, you can always drop us a tweet at Journalism News. But that's all from me this week. Until next time.